Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hello. Welcome to this. It is the Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. And thank you for supporting us on Patreon if you are indeed an Egg Chasers patron supporter. Uh, you can find Egg Chasers every Sunday without fail, or shall I say Monday morning in your feed. And you can also find us on Twitter. Egg Chasers Rugby Podcast is at Rugby Podcast. I'm at Jay Beardmore. And yeah, I'll see you there if you wish. Anyway, uh, today I am interviewing Jack Singleton. So enough of this nonsense. Let's get on with it. Jack, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I think I'll just probably get into um, the really se- the really serious questions. Are you ready for Christmas? Uh, not particularly. Um, I've been out today to try and pick up a couple of last minute. Well, I've still got a bit of time, um, but yeah, I need to need to sort out a, lot, a couple more presents. Uh, what do you guys get up to over Christmas? Will Gloucester be holding like their annual Christmas party? What goes on? Uh, we we have like a, a dinner with um, sort of like wives and girlfriends and stuff, but that's all sort of been thrown into chaos now with the new COVID situation and stuff. So I don't know whether that will be going ahead. But yeah, Christmas is always a difficult one because especially for me living two hours from home and we got a big game Boxing Day, you don't really get to celebrate as much as um, as much as you'd like to. Two hours away from what? Uh, from from so, work. No, no, Sorry, my home home is um, Harpenden, where I was brought up. Ah, right, yeah, I'm with you. So that's an interesting thing, actually, because um, I thought I knew quite a lot of you. I thought you were Saracens Academy, uh, and then straight from there, you had a few appearances for Saracens, you were linked to the England squad, and then all the salary cap stuff happened, and and then you ended up in Gloucester. But that's not the story at all. You were at Worcester first. Yeah, so I was was originally Saracens Academy, actually, um, and then... Didn't get signed on there, but uh, luckily my academy coach I got on really well with was Rory Teague at the time. He sort of wanted to keep me on there, but they didn't have, I don't, I don't know, it wasn't his decision. And he basically got me sorted out with a contract at Worcester. And yeah, spent ah. um, five years there. Uh, really enjoyed my time there, actually. Still have a lot of good friends there as well. That's really uh, interesting yeah. because Rory Teague was, of course, at Gloucester for a, a while too. So is that kind of how everything came about no well i don't think so so he so it was weird when i signed my loan deal with gloucester about a week later uh was when david humphreys resigned and Johan ackerman resigned uh, i was kind of <laughs> in the headspace of like i've just signed for saris and they've been relegated out of the league and i've just signed for gloucester and their head coach and dor have just left so i was like i'm I was thinking I was cursed at the time. My no, word. I never actually got to work with um, Tiggy at Gloucester again, unfortunately. So that's, wow. So that must have been quite a shock, actually, because you do sign on the basis that you're going to get a good coach, a good programme. And to see what happened at Gloucester at that time, I mean, I was very uncertain about what the future of the club was. Uh, what were you thinking? Yeah, well, that's that's what I was thinking as well, because there wasn't like an immediate replacement. I to be honest, I wasn't there at the time and I didn't really know there was anything going on at Gloucester really, so it all came um, as a little bit of a shock. Um, 
but luckily like skivs was announced pretty soon after yeah and then yeah and then um got along with skivs really well and was enjoying my time at gloucester um and i was playing a lot after the covid restart so just decided to stay on yeah yeah the skivington appointment is really interesting because as an armchair fan which i am you think of Skivington, and he was a positional coach in London Irish. Now, he's obviously well-known throughout the game, but you've just lost uh, an Ulster great, a Heineken Cup winner there. Was he a Heineken Cup winner? Probably. Um, Probably. And then, of course, Johan Ackerman, who came with an enormous reputation, and you just didn't know really what Skivington was going to bring. And I think this season in particular, uh, he's absolutely shooting out the lights. Yeah, I think it was... um... It was a bit of unknown to start. Like, obviously, he was a young coach. Well, young for a coach. Um, but the coaches, I think the coaches he's brought in, Don Warduck, again, young. And then there's Kingy, who's really experienced. Yeah. And Trev, um, our scrum coach, I think is a really good balance, to be honest. And like you say, I think last year we were a bit disappointed. A lot of stuff. I mean, you know we weren't where we, we thought we should be in the league and stuff like that. And um, luckily this year, so far, we've we've sort of turned a bit of a corner. Yeah, so bear with me here because I am going somewhere with this. But uh, do you remember Michael Vick uh, in the NFL? Uh, I don't know. So there was a quarter... Coach or player? Player. So Michael Vick was a superstar quarterback got put in jail for fight, for fighting with dogs, and then he came back, and it was like massive news. First season, he did really, really well. But some guy came up with a stat that he had more lucky passes than anyone else, and in the next year, it sort of came true, which is all the luck he had one year just completely vanished. I think Gloucester sort of went down the road last year of being the most unlucky team, because if you look at all of your results, you were losing by one or two points. And I think, if I'm correct, you got more losing bonus points than any other team. So it just shows you weren't, even though the table suggested that you were a little bit off the pace, turns out you weren't that far off the pace at all. Yeah, we we chatted about that quite a bit in pre-season. Because off the back of a season like that, confidence can sometimes take a knock and like, and then when you actually looked at it, it was like I think it was like seven or eight games were within I think it was like five games were within three points and then it was like nine were within seven or something like that. Yeah. Which is ridiculous and um and like it just showed that we weren't far off and I think a lot of that is Skiv's obviously this season had a and the coaches had a full pre season to work with us. Um and that helps a lot. But yeah, it was like we knew we weren't far off. It just like you say, sometimes it's luck, but you sort of make your own luck, and I think you know that's that's kind of what Skibs instilled. It's like it's not about luck; it's about just working hard and getting your head down. Uh, I've really enjoyed the messages from Skibbington in his press conferences. I've seen a few of them so far, and he does seem to put an, an awful lot of emphasis on the basics, such as work yeah. rate, such as set piece. And I think, particularly this year, when the league is so much more competitive and there's so much more parity across it, that's one, probably one of the reasons that you're doing as well as you are. Yeah, I think I think he knew what I mean when I was at Worcester and and Starys it was always like Gloucester were inconsistent and they'd rock up one week and win a game that they shouldn't and then they'd lose a game that they should should have had in the bag easily and I think going to basics solves a lot of that. Yeah. Like making sure everyone turns up each week, work ready to work hard, be physical, get your set piece and just do your job kind of thing. Um so I think so far this season, I mean, we've had a couple of 
we're still not consistent throughout games. Like we've had a couple of ones where we've nearly thrown, but um, I think like we've rocked up to games in a lot better mindset than maybe before. But again, I can't really can't really comment on that because that was sort of before I got to got to Gloucester anyway. Yeah, I think these these things are like habits, though, aren't aren't they? You you, you get used to yeah. winning and it becomes a habit. You get used to losing and before you know it, you're losing games that you thought you should have won. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So just tell me about a bit more about Skivington then. He comes through through the door. Does he sit every one of you down in individually to get to know you? How what was your first in, um, interaction with him like? Uh not particularly. To be honest, I don't I don't deal too much with Skivs. He's got sort of a line out analysis who does all that stuff for us. Okay. Um he sort of runs the breakdown, but um yeah, it was a bit of a. It was kind of just like flowed straight into it off the back of, off the back of COVID. Mm. Um, yeah, I think my first like proper sit down with Skivs was when he basically offered to sign me on full time when I was here initially on loan and what his sort of um, plans were for the club and and what ideas they had and stuff like that. So he's he's quite an honest, straight talker. Like that's that's why I really. You know, I think all the boys really respect him because there's no sort of BS with Skibs. It's yeah. all sort of straight and narrow. Uh, so, just on the signing for, uh, sorry, for Gloucester on a full-time basis. If you hadn't have signed that, would you have returned to Saracens? Is that how your deal was structured? Yeah. So I had another. So when I signed from Worcester, it was a three-year contract. Yeah. And I would have gone back with another two years, I think, left on my contract with Saris. I see. And. In terms of salaries, obviously they've gone through their own problems, but they're a mighty organisation. What was it that made you want to stay at Gloucester rather than head back over to London? Particularly because you're from um, kind of around there. Yeah, well, that was one of the initial things. Probably the one of the biggest that, and obviously what the club is, and winning trophies and stuff like that, and living at home or near home was um, was a big pull for me. And yeah. then. Um, <laughs> It was just it was a difficult one because after the COVID restart, I think I played every game under skivs except for the midweek ones, and I just realised sort of how much I missed playing week in week out. Yeah, um, and with Jamie there, and I think Jamie had just signed, re-signed another contract. I just didn't see myself getting ahead of him in that Sari setup. So, as much as I, it was a really tough decision as well. It kind of took me a whole off season to come up with an answer. I bet um, it did. Yeah, because I did. I did really enjoy the club. I loved being back home. The lads were all unbelievable. But um, yeah, I think I think it was just I missed playing playing rugby consistently. Yeah, and to be fair, it sounds like you might have made the right decision there because your performances over the last few weeks have been particular, been particularly impressive. Now, I mentioned this to you over WhatsApp, but are you aware that teams are defending the lineup differently when you're when you're playing as opposed to? Other Gloucester hookers? No, I wasn't. I wasn't aware of that. No. Yeah, this this is this is actually a thing. So I was talking to a, a player. I short named the team, but they were saying, yeah, when um, when you were playing, they prefer to defend middle and back, and then as soon as you come off, they just want to defend the front and make uh, and make the hooker throw over. Which I think, in terms of compliments, is about as high as it gets. Yeah, it's it's very nice to hear. Um, but you know, it's not always like. It's not always down. It's very cliche, but it's not always down to the hooker. Like it's a lot of 
moving parts and the hookers tend to get the rap of it when it goes poorly yeah and then you know it's vice versa when it goes well but um but no it's yeah that is that is quite nice to hear in terms of compliments but i mean it can turn it can flip on its head real quick i remember <clears throat> we were going pretty well all through the season and then extra at home they um they got on top of us a little bit at set piece which yeah. is a frustrating one. Oh yeah Absolutely. Um, I was ch- chatting to uh, an, to an analyst called Ben Darwin, and he actually said that one of the most important relationships in a rugby side is between the hooker and the second row. And hookers tend to underperform for the first two or three years because they need to get that timing right with their primary jumper or jumpers. So it's it's phenomenally difficult. And you're right, hookers do tend to get the blame, and you see so many good throws which are overthrows because someone's just not got high enough. Yeah, it is um it is a big thing having a good relationship, especially like especially when stuff starts to go wrong as well. Yeah. Because say if it is a, a missed throw, like a lot of hookers don't want to get don't want to get a death stare. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've had a few of them from Ed Slater since being at Gloucester. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's just about if you've got that good relationship, you can have like an honest chat and know that it's not someone digging you out. Yeah. Um, and then you can get on with your next thing. Yeah, because the rather e- than holding on to it. Yeah, because the easiest thing in the world is to blame the overthrow or what whatever it may be, particularly for a wrong call. The wrong calls are the most infuriating. Yeah, yeah, hundred uh, percent. How much say do you have as a hooker into you know, what what calls you make, what you think is possible during a game? Are you constantly having those having those chats? Uh, a little bit. Sometimes when I feel like a movements not working or there's some um, i might give a little bit of input um and then like pre-match it's sort of weather dependent is the kind of question i get like are you comfortable throwing to the tail here if it's say blowing a gale and missing with rain but um but no i i i prefer to keep sort of my nose out of it and just just kind of get on with it really let them because they're the ones who do like sunday night meetings and watch all the line outs so Oh, I don't want to end that? up getting. Uh, well, the line-out callers and our analyst will do that, um, and then they'll put a plan together on that sun or on that Sunday, and then Monday morning, um, so that we're ready to go. And I don't want to go on. I don't want to get roped into one of their meetings. So no, you don't. My Sunday evenings. That that's really interesting. I had no idea. On, and on and on Sundays of all times. Yeah, I think they just. I think they do like a quite. A br- I think the analyst puts a lot in place, yeah. and then. They'll do a Zoom call, make sure everyone's happy with it, so, and, and then send out the sheets. So do you guys show up to games week on week with a different set of calls, or do you just emphasise different things within the same set of calls? Uh, different set of calls most weeks. Uh, like Sometimes some calls carry over, Yeah, especially in a game where, say, if we haven't used a lot of lineouts or something like that, then they might carry over, but it's sort of dependent on how teams defend if they're sort of mirror defense or if they're two pod or yeah what who you want to try win the ball on the weaker jumper or say or something like that so that's astonishing so there is a lot that goes into it for those boys there's a lot to think about don't envy them no so i always think well i don't envy any of you actually because i always think one of the ways to get a really efficient set piece is repetition over and over again but if you're changing what you're doing from week to week it just really emphasizes how much work will go into that by everyone because these things are complex yeah they are i think once you've got like your basic 
all your basic movements um, sorted, then you can kind of work off that. Because that, each movement will just be a different version of that or something, or with a dummy somewhere or something like that. But yeah, we, we do get a lot of reps, and it gets harder as the season goes on, especially now we're on the 4G, that always knees start to play up and stuff like that. So... Um, so sometimes I don't I don't get as many reps as I'd like, but I can understand why when half the boys are struggling to walk up the line. <laughs> yeah. Um, so without giving the game away, obviously uh, you don't want to say too much. But what are the things that you guys emphasise at, at Gloucester? What What do you think that is giving you this dom- dominant set piece? Because you know, outside of Leicester, you're pretty much as good as it gets. I mean, probably including Leicester, actually. Um, I think it's I think it's like you said. I think it's just repetition. Um, Skivs has put a massive emphasis on it and then I think what comes with that is a little bit of confidence I think because I'm all started well at the start of the year yeah you know all the boys are brought into all the boys are brought into it and like I said earlier about Skivs it's it's a lot of very simple stuff it's like work hard see who breaks first like keep pumping your legs stuff like that it's it's all very simple stuff but it's it is just true it's like who kind of a mindset of like do we want to break them or let them break us kind of thing i absolutely love that yeah i i think i'm sorry it no i was just saying it's good because it gives you there's not anything to think about other than just working hard so when it when you've got that in your head you're not worried about other things like your technical detail and stuff like that it's um it makes it easier yeah i i I love line outs and the reason i love them so much is and I think they're disproportionately important compared to the effect that you get, is because I think it's very important for a team to be able to hang their hat on something. So if you have real confidence in a set piece, you can say, well, at least we can beat them at that, and then from there you can build on other parts of the game during the match, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It's just I a, think a I, re- pride. I think um, I realised how important set piece was the more, the more I played, and then especially going into like England camps and... Um, and going to salaries as well. That was when I kind of really realised how important set pieces, especially in like test matches and and knockout games and stuff like that. Like against Exeter, we had we had a line out shot five meters out, and I think Armand got up and stole it. Yeah, and like that could have could have won us the game at the end of the day. Like we're I think or I think we're only a couple of points down. Fine margins. Um, yeah, and like you just you lose them lineouts, and it you don't know how the game's going to go. So, so having something to hang your hat on like that's always nice. Uh, tell me about this. Just changing the subject completely. When I was doing a little bit of Wikipedia research, so you know, not exactly the most in depth. It says that you had your debut as a professional rugby player in Russia. Is that right? Yeah, I did. Um, at Worcester, I think I was twenty. I was 21. I'd just come off the back of my 20s year. We played NSI away. Luckily, the game got moved from like Siberia to Moscow because the weather was too bad. I remember we were watching um, we were watching whoever they played the week before, and it was in like an absolute blizzard. But yeah, luckily we were in Moscow and it wasn't as cold, but it was still freezing. Um, and we lost actually as well. We Did lost, you? Like, ten- 10-8. It was the worst game I reckon I've ever played in still to this day. Wow. It was horrible. Now, a bit of trivia for you. Do you know the other Premiership player that had his debut against NSI? Not as a professional. A AJ McGinty. 
Oh, really? Yeah. He played, oh, play. he played Connacht at NSI, but unlike you, he played in Siberia. Uh, and I was talking oh, really? to a few of the guys that went over to watch it, some of the journalists, and they said about 30 minutes in, their phones stopped working because they were too cold. So they had to like, hold their phones underneath their armpits just to, you know, ju- just to get some communication. That might, I think that might have been the game that I was watching. I think it was Connacht or someone playing. That's them. it. And it, it genuinely looked horrific. I, if I was there, I would have wanted that called off 100%. Oh, I'd, I'd want to play Russians that. The Russians absolutely loved it as well. Oh. Yeah, that was bad. Luckily, we got we got them back at home. I think we we put a decent scoreline on them. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, what were they like to play against, if, if you can even remember that um, back? We, we put a, quite a young side out there because we weren't... That was... We're a challenge cup and we're massively focused on trying to stay up in the prem at the time yeah and um they ended up just beating us up physically like um the pitch was horrendous oh god it was so it was so bad the pitch was horrendous <laughs> we had a bunch of like 20 18 year olds out there couldn't play rugby it was just getting it was literally just scrum and maul and um yeah and a bunch of bald russians beating us up yeah they All have some... the exact same exactly they have some big men there Sale Sharks yeah, had uh, Val Morozov and Andrei Ostrakov there for a while. And it's weird. I think there's like one province of Moscow which produces rugby players. Uh, well, that's where they c- came from, at least. And both those men are just enormous. They're, they're enormous by premiership standards. I mean, what they do in the Russian League or in the Challenge Cup or to the Challenge Cup, Cup Minnows, I dread to think. Yeah, well, we've we've signed um, Kirill, um and he's been he's actually been class for us but yeah he was like an olympic re- i think i don't know whether he went to the olympics but he was trying to go to the olympics as really? a wrestler and he's like 30 i think he's like 34 or something and he is an absolute freak in the gym i've never seen anything like it wow so uh, <laughs> sale do you remember the moldovan that sale had I, i've forgotten his name now which yeah. is embarrassing yeah, I played against him. I can't remember his name. I can't remember his name either, which is embarrassing because he's an absolute legend. Um, oh, that will come back to me in a second. Well, he was a similar sort of specimen, an excellent prop, but also an incredible wrestler. No one ever wants to be paired up with him in like the warm-up drills when you got to wrestle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think on a few socials, a couple of a couple of boys have tried to um, tried to have a little wrestle with him, and he's just dusted them out pretty quick. Love it, absolutely, absolutely love it. Uh, now, your Saracens time seems interesting to me because I, you didn't play play very much there. When you went back to Saracens, were they looking at you as like the not the replacement for Jamie George? But I mean, effectively, they don't sign lads unless they think they're going to be very very good. So, what was the deal? Were they telling you, look, come here, and we're going to be looking at you for England? How did that all come about that you returned? Um. So at the time, I'd pl- I'd come off the back of a season with Worcester, where I think I played something like twenty eight games, and I was I was knackered. And I remember meeting up with them, and they kind of told me about this like sixty foot, like going like sixty forty with Jamie and um, and stuff in the prem, and then cup games would come down to form and stuff. Yeah, and um, it just I think the issue was was I came I went there off the back of. World Cup, so I got in. I started late with them. Um, played against Gloucester two days after getting off the plane uh, from Japan, and then started against Racing the next week. And I didn't have the best game against Racing, um, 
and I think, and then we on my first day we were got told we were relic or deducted the points initially. Oh, it, was this so, was this the Racing game where Manu Vanapola started? Yes, I think so. Yeah, it yeah. was because. If I remember correctly, and I might be misremembering this, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Um, no, you're good. But I think you were given the points deduction, and therefore when you went to, do, went to Europe, you picked a slightly weaker team to focus on the Premiership, yeah. and then they relegated yeah. you anyway. Yeah, so that was the issue. So I went there, played the Europe games, um, because obviously they weren't focusing on that, and then it was like Prem we're going to try and make up our points or whatever. So Jamie ended up playing all the Prem games or most of them anyway that I can remember. Um, and then we finished like that block of Prem and it was back into Europe. And then we got told we were relegated for sure. And then it was like, all right, well now we're going to try win Europe. So then Jamie played all the Europe games as well. Oh. Um, yeah. So it was, it was just like, and I don't, I don't blame them because I was new. I was still trying to learn calls in the system and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I just didn't. I didn't play as much as I was hoping for. Yeah, um, and that was like, and I didn't realize how much I kind of missed going week in, week out. At the time when I was like leaving Worcester, I was I was knackered, and I was like twenty three, twenty four at the time, and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to cope like, the next couple of years if I'm carrying on doing this. So the the appeal of like one game on, one game off. Yeah, it appealed, like I say, it appealed to me, but um, realised it, like, if I knew what I knew now, I don't think that would have been the best decision. Well, you know, it's it's easy to say that with with hindsight, because you go, you know, you sign at Saracens, you expect to then pick up a few uh, medals and trophies along the way. And, yeah. you know, had had what happened not happened, you could be looking at season two, two or three, where you, you are 50-50 with Jamie. Because, you know, as as you've played more more yeah. this season, I, th- I think you've more, I think you've more than proven your worth. Yeah, no, that was, yeah, that, that was what, moving home and the winning trophies, like, was the, was the big thing. And as soon as the trophies were out of the picture and stuff, it was, um, it didn't, the offer didn't look as good as um, it once had. Now I know this seems like an obvious, um, an obvious answer now, but can you just describe like the atmosphere in Saracens when they were just handed points deductions? Because I think everyone understands why it happened. Uh, we can debate how fair it was, but we understand why it, uh, why it happened. I think a lot of people will look at the punishment and how they had three separate punishments as a little bit un- a little bit unfair. So, what was it like within the like within the group every time they announced a different punishment? Um, it was kind of it was a bit weird because it was like almost if you don't laugh you'll cry. <laughs> yeah, and like everyone was just like, "What on earth is happening at the moment?" Because because I, I signed there obviously with no idea this like in, like I saw it on Twitter that they were getting like people were saying they should be investigated and stuff like that, but I actually had no idea what was happening when I signed. And so when I actually got there, it was just it was a bit like, what the, what the fuck is going on? Like, um, but it was just a little bit of uncertainty of like, obviously there's going to be boys who are going to have to leave to get them under the cap and whatnot. So that was that was kind of the thing. It was like, and like I think a lot of the lads who'd been there had been there for a long time together as well. So yeah, 
I think that was probably a bit harder for them than it was for me, who was told on my first day at the club. Yeah, so what do they do? They just bring you all in as a group? Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. People say, look, this is going to happen. Because apparently the players had like a day's, a day's extra um, notice that this was coming down before it was released into the press. Uh, no, I don't think, well, maybe some of the senior boys might have had an Yeah, idea. maybe, actually. Um, but no, I I rocked up hungover from like a three-day bender in Japan and, <laughs> uh, and got told there was an emergency meeting at nine o'clock, so I rocked, walked into that and was, yeah, told we were 50 points off zero. Incredible. What did it, it start? Was. It wasn't 50 points. What would it start? It might have been 50 I think points. It was like thir- I think it was like 30, was it, maybe? Be 32, 35, something like that. Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest compliments ever, played, ever paid to Saracens was the fact that they gave, gave them the points deduction and then they worked out and thought, hang on a minute, these guys might actually survive relegation, which was, yeah. which was, which was a problem. And then they looked at their rules and they went, um, hang, um, hang, uh, hang on, if they're automatically relegated, the rules still say that the people that finished bottom get relegated so there'd be in a situation of relegating Leicester Tigers by the rules and then you guys by default and punishment so do they bring two guys two teams up or you know like what happens so they, they yeah. came up with this amazing solution which was to fine you pretty much the the I think I think it equals something like the most points ever scored in a Premiership season just in case they turned around and scored the most points ever scored in a, in a Premiership season <laughs> yeah it was um it was ridiculous. So hamfisted. It was a ridiculous time, to be fair. Uh, um, Gone, but no, it was. It was surprisingly like the mood wasn't as doom and gloom as you'd think. I don't know what it was like before that, obviously, but we still. I still really enjoyed my time there. Like, and the lads were good fun as well. So, yeah. Now, I, they're obviously a very close knit group size, and you came into them at a very unusual time. But how did they go about? You know, integrating you into that team because they're fairly famous for their socials and making sure everyone feels part of what they're doing. Yeah, I think so. I think the day we got told, we they ended up just giving us the day off because they were just like almost no point kind of training. And then um, so then the following week, like I said, we had racing, um, and I think we ended up having like a Monday night social in, in Paris. Had no, in uh. so this was the week building into Paris, which for me was like my first Champions Cup game. I was like pretty nervous and stuff, and then it was just like, yeah, we're just gonna all get absolutely steaming in a pub. Um, we've hired it out, 
uh, on the Monday, gave us Tuesday off. So I think we only did like Wednesday and Friday or Wednesday and Thursday built going into that week. I see. I see. So, so you get to know people pretty quick from um, socials, but I didn't get to go on uh, any of the trips, which is that and not winning any trophies is probably my one biggest, biggest regret. I regret, but I think I missed out on. Yeah. So you were at, oh my gosh, right, St. George's School. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Now, that was a school that Owen Farrell went to. Is, have I got that? Yes. So Owen and Marrow came to it until sixth form and then he left. Got it. So, who was left in Saracens from your academy group who you then rejoined when you came back from um, Worcester? So, in my age group, it was only Tom Whiteley. Um, okay. I think who was actually still there. But there was a couple of my, it was the year above me, was like sort of Nick Tompkins, Marrow, um, Nathan Early, obviously, he had left at that time. Yeah. And then I knew a few of the younger boys, like Nick Azikwe as well. I see. Yeah, Ezekwe is awesome, actually. He he's one of the most yeah. most underrated guys. His lineup work is exceptional. Between yeah, him he's... him and Mario in the lineup is brilliant. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to playing them. They're going to be um, our analyst is going to have a job on his hands that week. <laughs> yeah, because they've got got so many options. Both, I mean, their defensive stuff is great, but going forward, they're just very very hard, yeah. very very hard to stop. Yeah. Um, your England time. Uh, when was the first time you encountered Ed? Um, Eddie Jones and did he did he phone you out of the blue? Did your team manager let you know that you're in England? How how did that all come about? No, so my first time was when I was at Worcester. I uh, I was actually on my it was my 21st birthday. And I was at the races with a couple of mates and um, got a phone call off Charlotte, who's like the team manager sort of thing, and yeah. she basically just said, "Can you come into camp on Monday?" And that was so that was the. L- the Lions tour before the one that's just gone. Yeah. Uh, so it was the Argentina tour. So um, oh, yeah, I went yes, in there yeah, yeah. and that was uh, that was when I met Eddie and yeah, that was the first time I've been in and then yes. yeah, that was a that was an eye opener that one. So that Argentina tour, I call it the Jamal Ford Robinson tour. Oh yeah, how come? Because because <laughs> he got called him up actually on that tour. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah, it's been nice to actually Go back to Gloucester and see him. He's good. He's good value, Jamal. Oh, he's an absolute. He's an absolute top boy. Br- yeah, brilliant lad. I asked Jamal at the time, and I'm going to ask you the same question now. What did you spend your first England fee on? Well, I spent my first fee on. So I didn't actually get a cap until what four years, uh, three years later. So uh, I only got my not? first cap um, on the uh, in the World Cup warm ups, but. I didn't actually buy anything too drastic. I remember the first time that like, the pay came through and I was like just out the academy at Worcester and I was I like, can only oh imagine my God. <laughs> oh my... Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't buy anything too drastic. I think the first time I probably went a bit ham was after South Africa. I got called up halfway through yeah. uh, the tour and then we went. I went to Croatia with a few of the England boys after that and... They're obviously a lot on a lot more money than me at the time, yes. and I was just trying to keep up with them. So, you can walk into the, almost any Premiership car park and w- that work out which cars belong to the England boys. Yeah, yeah, the ranges and the yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know what I would do with uh, my first twenty grand match fee or however much it was at the time. Probably just uh, buy twenty grand's worth of crated champagne, something like that. <laughs> really make a statement. I actually, I, I actually think I. At the time, I sold. I had a Citroen C1. 
And I remember nice. walking into Penny Hill Park and um, and there was like a Ferrari and an Aston Martin in front of me. I was just like, I'm so out of place. Here. I can <laughs> None of the players' imagine. cars, but yeah, I think I actually sold that. I sold that car with the mindset to buy, to go and buy a nice car. And then I ended up just getting a VW Golf, which I've still got today. So Very wise. Very wise. Don't be buying flash cars. Save your money. Uh, the uh, boys at Gloucester are trying to talk me into getting a nicer car to don't get the share group. They don't want to get in the VW Golf. No, do, do not listen to them. <laughs> Save your money. So with England then, I mean, you mentioned before, actually, that you're quite nervous with your European Cup debut. Did you have the same nerves going, in, going into camp? Because it does sound quite, quite, da- quite daunting. I think the first time I did, um, especially being uh, the only Worcester player there, Ben Teo had obviously been called up to the Lions. Um, oh, yeah, okay. And, uh, yeah, I didn't. I knew, like, the odd lad from 20s, but not really many my age group, a lot a bit younger, well, a few lads a bit younger than me. So, like, when you don't know anyone going in initially, like, I wasn't, like, that was only my first season really playing Premiership as well. Um so yeah, I was pretty nervous the first time going in. And then sort of as you get more comfortable with the group, um, it starts to change and you feel you feel more like a part of the the actual team and stuff. Yeah, I, I imagine it is very odd going into a group of lads who you already know, well, know of. You don't know them, but you know of them. It's like, you know, it must be, yeah. it's, it's a strange kind of introduction process when Owen Farrell says, hi, I'm Owen. Well, yeah, I know that. Well, I've, of yeah, course, from you from Saracens. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. Um, and as for Eddie Jones, what kind of feedback does he give you as a player? What's he told you that you've got to work on? Because allegedly he tells everyone you've got to work on something. Yeah, he does. Um, it changes from time to time, but it always comes back to basics. Like set your set pieces as, as a hooker. Like you can't, you're not going to play test match rugby if you can't throw or scrummage. So um, that's always the big one. And then a lot of it's put on sort of your head as well. It's like, what do you think you need to get better at or what do you think your strengths are? Yeah. Um, and like sometimes it's not what you need to improve on. It's like you need to start doing more of what you're good at. Um, yeah, it changes from time to time. But I had a good – I went in obviously for the South Africa week um, and, yeah, got some good feedback from him then. Nice. Um, now, I don't know how, how to actually ask this. I'll just ask it. Uh, as I see fit, do you, do you believe him? And what I mean by that is he's renowned for playing mind games or saying things which are a little bit bit provocative. Do you actually believe him when he says you know you need to improve on this? Do you, do you ever get the sense that he might just be looking for a reaction from you? Uh, I don't know. I don't know to be honest. I I would say I believe him because he's you know if, I think if you don't believe in like your head coach then there's obviously something going wrong there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd say I probably do believe him. Like sometimes it's hard to, it's not what you want to hear. And sometimes it's like, but you know, he's been around the game long enough that he knows what he, he knows what he wants to see in players yeah. and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. So <laughs> one of the things you said then, and I'm quite interested in, in, in this, I'm sorry if it's a bit nausea, but you said as a hooker, you've got to do your throwing in. Well, we've spoke about, li- spoke about line outs. Scrimmaging. I, you can broadly tell if a prop's having a good game or a bad game, and there are other things to it, such as, you know, or his second row is pushing or whatnot. But you can yeah. sort of look at him and go, yeah, he's, you know, he's good shape, he isn't. How do you assess if the hooker's doing a good job? How do you fight your corner and say, yeah, I, I did all right, actually, thank you very much? I couldn't really tell you, to be honest. 
I think I think um, what he wants to see from a hooker is sort of like the almost like leading the front row kind of yeah. thing. Um, being able to manage referees, stuff like that, manage your props. Um, is yeah, like I do, I do know what you mean. It's hard to it's hard to see when if a hooker's a bad scrummager or something like that. Yeah, unless they're getting popped out the top of the scrum every scrum, but um, uh, yeah, that rarely happens. So, no, I. I think, yeah, unless you're getting absolutely drilled, then it's hard. And even then, you probably blame your props. So Yeah, absolutely you would. Yeah. No accountability <laughs> no, um, needed, thank you very much. Difficult one. Yeah, back five or the props. Uh, so on how do you go about managing the scrum? And actually, whilst we're on it, how do you go about managing the referee to convey uh, to convey that you are actually right? Um, it's difficult. It's a lot of like, especially at the moment, I've got a Georgian... The last couple of games, I've been playing with Val, Rapava, Ruskin, yeah. Georgian prop, who's not the biggest speaker. And then I've got the Russian who's learning in English, Kirill. So trying to figure out what's going on in those Crikey, two heads, yeah. nightmare at the moment. But um, it's just chatting to the referee, seeing what they, what pictures they've seen, and then trying to relay that back to the prop, because you don't want the prop going up to them every time and saying that, you know, because they'll always have an excuse of like he's binding here or he's yeah, dropping it, he something like that. And it's like, right, this is what the referees told me. If you try to do this, then hopefully that will, won't paint the same picture for him, kind of thing. Yeah, because everyone's trying to convince the referee that the other team are illegal, regardless yeah. of what it is. Yeah, regardless. Even the nines are trying to convince the ref. Like when you see a nine look at a touchy, trying to say that he's dropped the scrum, the nines haven't got a clue what's going on. Oh, no. No. I, I think that's one of the biggest difficulties with officiating. Because you know, I coach at lower level and I look at a scrum. And I think I know what's going. I think I know what's going on, but I don't really know what what's going on. How a converted nine, like for, I, you know, I'm not saying Cole Dixon doesn't know, but I'm just giving you an example. Like yeah. Cole Dixon was a nine. It must be phenomenally hard for him to work out all these moving pieces and to give a uh, you know a cohesive decision. And actually, he might be giving a decision where two infringements have um, occurred, which is completely yeah. completely possible. Yeah, 100%. And I think a lot of the time it's just a team that's more dominant will tend to get the decisions. Or if it's 50-50, they tend to lean towards the team with the ball, which, you know, like you said, it is. You do have some empathy for the refs as much as you're infuriated after if you've been pinged a few times. Like, it's impossible to tell. It's impossible to tell on, like, 70% of scrums who's, who's dropped what or... Because someone might have slip, like slipped in the scrum, and then the other prop gets pinged for hinging or something like that. It's um, yeah, it's very difficult. What are your, again? Sorry for the nausea questions, but what are your no, views on things like axial loading? So, just so the listener knows what I'm talking about here, this is when you basically pre-engage using, well, basically your neck, putting the weight through there. It sounds dangerous, but actually, the reason that a lot of hookers like it. A lot of hookers say that they don't, but a lot of hookers do like it. Is because it does give you one hell of an advantage if you know how, know how how to do it. Yeah, that's um, that's a difficult one because they tried to get rid of it. I think two years ago, um, they yeah. tried to stop any contact between the head and shoulder of the hookers. And I've actually had some calls and been chatting to Christian Day at the RPA because they're trying to figure out a way of. Of any of getting rid of it because uh, of like injuries and young hookers and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for me, it's like y- you kind of have to do it because if you don't, then you'll lose the like 
you'll lose the engagement. And if you lose the engagement, it's more than likely you're going to lose the scrum. Exactly. Um, but I've actually got an issue with it at the moment. So my neck's been playing up because of that, basically. And it stopped, like, some nerves firing down my left side. So, um, yeah, it is a niggly one. And I don't know whether... It, the thing is, if the moment they'll change... The moment they change the rules, there'll be someone will find a way to bypass it yeah. and load just as much weight, and then you'll have the same issue on something else. Um, you, so it's it's a tough one. You made a really good good point there, and one which I haven't really thought of, which is it's about young hookers, because once you get really uh, proficient at this skill, and it is a skill when it is explained to me by a different Premiership hooker. You realise, yeah, this is this is really serious. And you've got these absolute assassins in the front row. And if it's your first or second game out from the academy and it's a competitive game, you might be in trouble. Yeah, 100%. Especially when how much how much weight's loaded through. Because it's basically your he- the hooker's heads and the prop spines holding the whole weight of like eight people or something like that. So, um, yes, that's what Christian was talking about when he spoke to me was like, young hookers coming through are going to have more neck problems later going forward but it's like that they'll keep they'll keep changing the rules around the scrum for years and like you just there'll always be a way around it unless you basically pre-engage scrums which no one wants to see no one wants to see that i think we were actually in a pretty good place with scrimmaging when we first started the podcast about uh, nine years ago now the number one thing everyone was was talking about was injuries at scrum time. And then we changed the engagement sequence and it seems largely to have gone away except for this, this issue of axial loading. The only thing I would say, though, is the more that you remove the skill of scrummaging and the technique of scrummaging, the more you're just going to get absolutely massive units. If you just reduce yeah. it from something which is quite technical into something which is... A, a brute strength competition you're going to end up with just some absolute brutes yeah no i do know what you mean i think the technical element element sorry um has got has not it's not gone completely obviously but like from back when i was growing up watching rugby it's definitely um definitely slowly drifting drifting away which again takes away from like, the whole thing of rugby of like you can play all shapes and sizes. You don't want to get to the point where it's just some absolute machines yeah. in the front row kind of thing. Um, no, I, I do agree. But I think I do think scrummaging's in a good place, like you say. I think physios and stuff like that and medical teams are pretty good at making sure boys are on top of their neck strength and stuff to help reduce any risk. Uh, do you go through all of the prehab-type routines and protocols now? Yeah, I do. I kind of so I actually had this issue before when I first joined Glossa. It was like a couple of games in, and my neck went again. Uh, well, for the first time, but um, I was on top of it for a while, and then last year I basically I played only like seven or eight games, I think, because of my hamstring. And so now I've been focusing on not re-tearing my hamstring so much that I've lost like oh, I've see. lost doing that rehab stuff for my neck. So. It's a niggle, it's a niggle, but you're always going to get it in rugby where there's you focus on one thing and you slip away from the other. Oh, and to me that I've been talking about this recently on uh, other podcasts, but that to me is the art of rugby, not knowing what to do, but knowing what not to do because rugby's such yeah. a vast sport. Like it, you know, you've got to make uh, you've got to make sacrifices. That's both in terms of the team, i.e., you know, are we going to do lineouts and defense today because you can't do everything and same yeah. same for players it, just just as you've outlined there you can't keep on top of absolutely everything 
Yeah, hundred percent. You can't tick all boxes, so you just got to prioritize and hope that works for you. Uh, just going back a bit, talking about young hookers. When you had that season at Worcester, when you played you know, two million game or whatever it was, um, who were the older guys who you came up against who you thought were particularly good, particularly at scrimmaging? Uh, the Aussie hooker who was at Tigers, Plotanau. Uh, Plotanau, yeah. I thought he was, yeah. I thought he was class. To be fair, um, and that was like when Tigers weren't go, like weren't sort of what they were in terms of a big scrummaging outfit. I remember scrummaging against him, and I was like, Jesus Christ, this guy's really? strong. Um, yeah, he's the one that sticks out for me. I'm trying to think outside of that, he's probably the only one. Uh, Gus Creevy. Even now, okay. against Gus, I find because I I was at Worcester with Gus, yeah, um, only for a year, and then yeah, even scrummaging now, he's he's a tough hooker. Wow, so I would never have guessed that about Gus Creepy, which is stupid because he's Argentine. Do you know what it is? It's like do you know when people think Cristiano Ronaldo can't head a ball because he's so good at everything else? Well, that's what they used yeah. to think. They don't think it anymore because he's so good at throwing off you know out the back offloads and whatnot. You yeah. forget he's and actually Jacqueline. A, yeah yeah. Uh, class at the basics too as for Pelotta now David Flatman tells a story of when he played against Pelotta now I think either England age grades or England no it must be English age grades because he only had one cap at England and he said uh, start a hooker tight head went down so we just went over to tight head and absolutely do- dominated there instead yeah he um, he was a freak yeah he was uh, he was very good I also remember I'd never played against him and kind of happy kind of gutted i didn't but uh i uh so my the first year worcester were in the pram i remember he put on an absolute clinic and just destroyed our scrum and everyone i spoke to can't speak highly enough of how good he was yeah yeah front rows don't get nearly enough recognition and one of the things which annoys me the most about commentary is when oh, no, actually rugby in general the, uh, the writers um not all the commentators but some some of them is when they when they talk about the scrum as if it's something to be ashamed of, when actually it's it's probably the best thing about rugby. It's what makes rugby so unique. Yeah, I think I know the commentator you're chatting about there. Yeah, I Austin. completely agree. Yeah, yeah. He, he hates the scrum, doesn't he? I don't get it. Jesus, every game you hear him complaining about it, it's like, just let it go, mate. Yeah, I mean, I, some of the best sequences of rugby I've ever seen I think they all involve scrimmaging. So um, there was an epic at the wreck where Sale had a bath in the corner for the best part of eight minutes, scrum after scrum after scrum, resulting in a Sale Sharks penalty try. That's how I remember it. Whether that is actually true, I don't know. And the one that you will remember, and I just think it is still some of the best television I've ever seen. Do you remember Wales up against France? And it went for 100 minutes. 20 of those minutes were scrimmaging. And then trying to get their tight head off and the French doctors coming on and stuff. Yeah, it was a nightmare, wasn't it? Oh, it was awesome. We had a, um, we had a 100-minute game against uh, against Bath, actually, at Worcester. Did you? Where we got stuck in that. I think we were, like, a couple of points down. We were on top of them in the scrum. They had two yellow cards, and we just couldn't get a, the penalty try. And, yeah, I think I got <sighs> I think I got subbed off at, like, 98 minutes or something ridiculous. So I'd played 80 that game. Wow. Then we had 15 minutes or whatever of scrums. And, um, 
and then they decided to take me mm. off the one, and we ended up scoring off that one, so it was a good decision in the end. But Well, you like, know. I've just played 98 minutes. Like, why on earth am I coming off now? That's awesome. That's absolutely awesome. The, uh, <laughs> my favourite comment in the Welsh game was when Rob Evans, the Welsh loose head, I think, yeah, uh, uh, loose head, when the French are rolling about and trying to get the new uh, tight head on. goes, it's all right, ref. I'll play against anyone, which sounds great, particularly if you won, but you didn't. You got battered the next scroll. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes it doesn't go who does it. I do appreciate the sentiment and the uh, and, and the confidence, though. <laughs> the confidence, yeah. Um, let's finish off with, with some more Gloucester chat, uh, because I'm so massively impressed with where this team is going this year. What do you think the upper limit is for Gloucester this year? And where, where do you think that you'll end up finishing? Uh... I don't think we we never really set out a target even in pre-season. Like mm-hmm. Skibs never gave us like a top 6 or top 4 or anything like or Champions Cup rugby. Um he just kind of said like if you're one of the like cuz we train at King's home now. There's photos of like great Gloucester sides all over winning trophies and stuff like that and he was like how do you boys kind of want to be remembered and stuff? Yeah. Is that, do you want to go down as Gloucester legends or do you want to just be another Gloucester team that just fades into, into the distance? So, um, you know, I don't know where the limit is for this team. I think the good thing we've got at the moment is there's no real, there's no real egos or superstar kind of players. It's just a lot of, a lot of guys who work hard, like skips once. And I think we're, we're only really at the start of our journey at yeah. the moment. Like, I think two two and a half years in, including that COVID season, and um, yeah, I think I think we can really start to kick on and all being well, and we keep boys fit. And we've had like some good news recently of a couple of lads re-signing, like uh, Aki and that's that, that's uh, a good Ruin signing, Ackerman. man. Yeah, it's class. I was so I was praying he was going to stay because he's um, he's been unreal for us. Oh, he's just. Um... It's just one of those players that brings everything together. He makes everyone around him better. I, I, I think that's yeah, probably 100%. the best thing to say about him. And the games where we've... I mean, we missed him in that Exeter game. And I mean, so did Exeter missed all their international boys. But I think you can tell our attack slips off a little bit when Aki's not there. Yeah. Like, um, the way, yeah, the way he plays, he's just been he's just been class for us. So, that, yeah, that's a big re-signing. And Rue's been... Rue Ackerman's been yeah. class for us as well. He's, he's an absolute machine. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I, I don't know if this means anything at all, really. But one of the things I like about Gloucester in the squad is certainly the boys that I've interviewed in the past and have, and have had interactions with, they're just all incredibly down to earth. It sounds like a, a cliche, but you sort of get a sense of an org- set, um, a sense of an organisation. And I wonder if that's, you know, because of the necessity of where these play- players have come from. I mean, if you look at uh, Atkinson in particular, he is great. He is a, a great example. Uh, his career didn't even really take off until he came to Gloucester, and he came to Gloucester yeah. from Bedford. So yeah. you know, it, you do get kind of rooted when you've um, gone gone through that process. Yeah, we've got a couple ex Bedford boys and a few lads who've been around in the champ. Like even Chris Harris, he was at Rotherham. Um, you know, again, like he's someone who's like a key part of our squad, and he's like the most down to earth. I reckon I've met so um, yeah oh yeah I've interviewed him the other thing is is like with Skivs and uh, Luds our captain like Luds is probably epitomizes it like he's just a grafter like nothing fancy 
and he's not afraid to say anything to anyone like if boys are playing up or doing something stupid or not working hard enough like he's very happy to let them know yeah particularly as he sets up standard too which is quite important yeah yeah um, uh, he's been class just one other thing which I forgot to ask you did um, did you have a junior club were you affiliated to anyone before you became yeah, a special so, so I played at Harpenden uh, RFC was my was my club growing up and yeah even then I wasn't I was kind of just playing with mates never thinking about actually trying to make it in rugby it wasn't until I was like 17 which I was like I might might be able to have a crack at this yeah awesome stuff awesome stuff well look I'll, I'll, I'll let you go because uh, if we're going to talk about lower level rugby that's it that's which I love talking about and you've already done just over an hour so uh, I shall let you get get off and have your tea Ah, uh, thank you very much. No, it was a pleasure to chat to you. Absolutely, Jack. All right, take care, mate, and uh, speak with you soon. Cheers. Catch you soon. Th- thanks, that, mate. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team. You won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.